You can support the Historian's Podcast through our GoFundMe campaign. Click the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. Good morning, this is Peter Betts. Uh, speaking of Bob Cudmore today, I'm going to be talking about 4th of July in the little rural capital of the world, uh, Johnstown, New York, in the year 1821. And after that, we'll be talking about a very early uh, governor of New York State who also came from Johnstown. Governor Enos T. Throop. And no, I couldn't make that name up. (laughs) This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Peter Betts is Mr. History in Fulton and Montgomery Counties, a native of Amsterdam, a Fulton Montgomery Community College professor emeritus. Peter was county historian for many years in Fulton County, and for time immemorial, I think, he's written a bi-weekly column on local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. He's a musician, a storyteller, a punster, and a marksman at a local rifle club. Now, the 4th of July is a big holiday in America, and you've got a, a big article about the 4th of July from many years ago. Yes, actually 200 years ago, Bob. It's kind of amazing that electronic offices of FultonHistory.com was able to dig up old newspaper references to the year 1821, which is very unusual to go back that far, but we were lucky. So I'll tell you what uh, we discovered, okay? Okay. Uh, When writing their pension applications many decades later, many elderly Revolutionary War veterans sometimes recorded memories of joyful wartime Independence Day celebrations observed while in army camps or on the march. The earliest extant record of a post-war organized Independence Day celebration being held locally dates from exactly 200 years ago in 1821 although there were surely earlier celebrations which were undoubtedly held every year, even though we no longer have a record of it. And Mm -hmm. the thing you have to kind of remember is at that time, Bob, it literally started at dawn and didn't end until dusk. Thanks to the existence of a faded advertising poster that is in the uh, Fulton County Historian's Office, dated July 24th, 1821, we know that activities occurred in Johnstown that year. It must have been a very exciting day with soldiers and officers from both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 appearing in their best uniforms. And our flag, referred to as our banner of independence, carried by a proud veteran of the Revolutionary War, which unfortunately was not named. The old poster declares, and I quote, The day will be announced by one gun at daybreak. A federal salute will be fired at sunrise, and bells will be rung during the firing. So much for sleeping late. (laughs) The gun referred to was most assuredly a heavy cannon, uh, since an artillery company was present for the occasion. With Johnstown being yet small, this awakening blast would certainly have been heard all over town. The parade, which was referred to as a procession, formed at 10 a.m. at the courthouse. From there, it moved up William Street, turned left on Montgomery, hung another left on Market Street, and went back to the church, no doubt the predecessor of today's St. John's Episcopal Church. 
participants marched directly into the church to the tune of a musical group. That's a quote. Playing mm. a piece called Washington's March. I put several people on the trace of this piece of music called Washington's March. And unfortunately, we discovered there were several of them. Ah. So who knows, who knows which one they were playing. We are informed, and I quote, the north side of the church will be occupied by the ladies and the south side by the gentlemen, which ah. was, of course, a common arrangement in those old times. The patriotic exercises inside this earlier St. John's Church included more music, an opening prayer, the reading of the Declaration of Independence, and a concluding prayer. Then it was marching time again. Now a, a procession returned from Market to Maine, over Maine, back to William, and then directly to Mr. Johnson's to take part in dinner. Now, Mr. Johnson's refers to what was then known as the Johnson House, which was the leading hotel and tavern at that time. Hmm. And the church bell ringers must have probably had a good workout because the program indicates bells were rung continually during this repossession a procession to Johnson's, and again they rang them at sunset for the final cannon salute. During dinner, many toasts were drunk, and very likely many toasters were drunk too. <laughs> sure. Right. For at this early period in our history, July 4th, Independence Day, was our most important holiday. Once again, during the dining and toasting, a cannon salute was fired, accompanied by even more music. It's unfortunate the ancient poster gave no specific details regarding the type of music rendered or the musical organization that played it. Mm -hmm. Was it a primitive uh, local brass uh, military-type band or just the fife and drums familiar to the old veterans? All we know it is, is it is referred to as the band of music. The Order of March informs us the procession was led by an unnamed Marshal of the Day, followed by that good old band of music. <laughs> then came Captain J. Vischer's Company of Cavalry, Captain Veter's Company of Artillery, Captain Lobdell's Company of Light Infantry, and finally Captain Van Horn's Company of Riflemen. Wow. Next came our flag, borne by an unnamed revolutionary veteran, and behind him, other officers, village trustees, the sheriff, county clerk, judges, justices, clergy, the orator of the day, and last, a series of banners inscribed with the names of various military heroes, such as General Washington and General Montgomery. The hmm. Committee of Arrangements, who had organized this whole thing, were very leading citizens well-known in, in that time. Uh, Richard Dodge, Henry Fonda, not the one from Hollywood yet. No, no, I guess uh, not. John Cady, Howland Fish, who was the first of several generations of, uh, of people in that family that were judges and lawyers. Peter Bostwick, Samuel Jackson, Mr. Lobdell, Conkling, and, and other names that I could go through, but of course they wouldn't mean an awful lot. One, a couple I'd notice, uh, Henry Fry, who of course was a, a war veteran and the first uh, sheriff after they deposed the old uh, Sheriff White, who of course was uh, a Tory, and a man named Thaddeus St. John's, who later would be the founder of uh, St. Johnsville, 
as as we know it today. And also one other name that I know you've heard before, Benedict Arnold. Oh, good old Benedict, but that's the Amsterdam <laughs> Benedict Arnold, right? That is the Amsterdam Benedict Arnold, yes. This Benedict Arnold was an honorable, heroic American general and an honored early citizen of Amsterdam for whom Arnold Avenue is named. He's buried with his entire family at Amsterdam's Green Hill Cemetery and never betrayed anybody. That's good. Born a few months before the real Benedict Arnold betrayed his country, it's really difficult to understand why the parents of this good Benedict Arnold didn't early on change his name. Aren't there those who say that maybe they like Benedict Arnold and they thought he got a bum, bum deal and they were sticking with Benedict? Either that or it would have, the paperwork would have cost too much, who knows? That <laughs> could have Today we can watch as our veterans of various wars conduct respectful ceremonies for deceased war veterans on Memorial Day. Some of our municipalities stage Memorial Day parades, others wait until the 4th of July. Try to imagine this joyful 4th of July procession of 1821, at which time many veterans of both the Revolution and the War of 1812 were still very active and involved. They must all have carried with them as they marched their still vivid memories of frontier battles, Indian ambushes, and burials of scalped comrades and civilians. No mm. wonder those veterans who walked proudly in Johnstown's 1821 4th of July procession adjourned to the Johnson House to eat and drink. They mm. had earned it. One name I was sort of expecting, although maybe the timing is off, was the father of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Mr. Cady, wasn't he an attorney, and or was that, was he not of that time well, you know, period? You're, you're quite right, and the one name that is involved here is John Cady. Uh, John Cady uh, was, uh, I think, his brother. I'm not sure. I think he was, because I know he had a brother who was also a lawyer, but never made such a name for himself. But uh, no, he's not, he's not listed. And also, do you suppose they had fireworks at the end of the day, or is that an, an, a bad question and that they didn't have fireworks back then? I think they did. Well, I think that they could have, I think, because I think the Chinese had fireworks centuries before that. Yeah, but there's no mention of fireworks here at all. Anywhere, just the cannon fire. Yeah. Cannon fire and uh, perhaps the military salutes here and there. Well, certainly Johnstown is, as I say, it's an old settlement. I mean, one of the oldest around these parts. Right, and at that time, remember, it wasn't just Fulton County as we think of Fulton County now. The whole thing included what is also Montgomery County, which is the reason there's no surprise that Benedict Arnold was involved, even though he was from Amsterdam. And the Johnson House was the hotel. What was the status of what we call Johnson Hall, the old home of the Johnsons. Was that, at first I thought that's what you were talking about, but it no, was something no, else. No, not Johnson Hall at all. Uh, no, the Johnson House was the hotel and uh, tavern, which uh, basically rested, uh, I know you know the area. It was a very large building, and it sat roughly the whole lot, okay? It was a big building. Uh, it was behind what is now the county building it roughly encompassed the space of the ale funeral home and the johnstown historical society building next to it 
But again, like a dog with a bone, back to Johnson Hall. At that point, somebody was living in that place, or we don't know? Oh, yes. No, I could do another one on that. I actually did a three-part thing on the evolution of Johnson Hall throughout the 19th century. Uh, Yes, that that was uh, lived in the Wells family were occupying that at the time. They had bought it from, I believe, from Simon Talbot, uh, who had owned it just a few years uh, he, he had been a, uh, a naval officer, a naval commander during the Revolution, and, and he owned Johnson Hall for a few years, and he sold it to the Wells, and they owned it for the better part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And what was their name again? Wells. Wells. Okay. And, you know, they were very wealthy. They became very wealthy over a period of time, and uh, they had, uh, uh, we still have what's known as the Wells House, which is... Uh, and uh, kind of upscale infirmary, if you will, it's in Johnstown. You can support the Historian's Podcast through our GoFundMe campaign. Click the GoFundMe link on uh, bobcudmore.com or uh, send a donation through the mail. Make a check out to Bob Cudmore and mail to Bob Cudmore. 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. We're talking with Peter Betts, who is a, the author of a bi-weekly column on local history uh, in the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville, New York. We just heard from Peter on the 4th of July celebration in Johnstown, uh, which took place back in 1821. And now Peter's going to talk about a man, I believe, from Johnstown, and I thought you were making up this name, but you would assure me you weren't. Uh, his, his name is Enos, E-N-O-S, Throop, T-H-R-O-O-P. Who was Enos Throop? Well, Enos was one of our early governors, and I will tell you his story. <laughs> I try to make it as interesting as possible, considering that stories of early governors are generally not that exciting. Right. But I will try. Many years ago, I was loaned a tattered old book called The Lives of Governors of the State of New York by a man named John Jenkins, which was published in 1851. Now, until then, I knew virtually nothing about Enos Throop other than the fact that he came from Johnstown and was an early governor. Even though it's a very early book, it was very well documented. Enos's father uh, married a lady named Abiah Thompson in 1783 and moved from her home in Dutchess County to Johnstown. In Johnstown, he purchased at the sale of confiscated estates of the Johnson family, a village lot, now in part occupied by Judge Cady, where he erected a dwelling house. And, of course, that was the time period when all the uh, Loyalist uh, properties had been confiscated and were being resold, as you know. What is a, uh, I'm sorry to be ignorant, what is a drawing house? I'm, I'm sorry, what? What did he erect? A dwelling. Draw- dwelling. Oh, a dwelling. A dwelling. Okay. Dwelling. I thought it was some specific thing. Okay. Well, Jenkins State's George then spent a year away from Johnstown serving as clerk under Judge James Duane of Duanesburg, who was a very prominent jurist as, as, as well as Judge Cady, as, as I think you know. Uh, he read law there and uh, then returned to Johnstown. He opened a school and engaged in the business of conveying. Conveying, basically, I think what it means is he was dealing in the property transfers of all those seized properties. Oh. Okay? 
and apparently there was some money in it or he wouldn't have done it. It says he became well-liked in Johnstown and obtained several small offices, the problem of profits from which enabled him to increase his livelihood. However, something somehow went wrong. In 1792, he suffered a serious accident that completely destroyed his health. He died uh, two years later, his funds expended. He left nothing but a house, a lot, debts, and a penniless widow with four small children. And and this what what happened to uh, Enos, of course, was one of those small children. Uh, in life, he was very charitable and very very uh, tolerant with people that had debt problems. His uh, widow did what all widows did in those days, which of course was marry someone as soon as possible, <laughs> who had an income. You know, uh, it's uh, it's still recommended actually. Yes, indeed. Uh, Silas Talbot uh, at that time was the uh, owner of Johnson Hall, as I had mentioned. Through some uh, connection, Talbot's daughter had become friend of of Mrs. the widowed Mrs. Throop. Uh, She married a man named George Metcalf, who was a very successful attorney, and he took Enos under his wing and uh, took him to Albany when he was involved in Albany politics. And, uh, and to make a longer story short, Enos Throop was admitted to the bar in 1796. He was uh, apparently a very fair man. By 1811, he was county clerk and owned a prosperous sawmill. He saved his money, bought a big tract of land in Cayuga County, and very much in the, in the modern sense became lord of the manor. And at one time it was known as Throopsville. Really? Can you say Throopsville? Throopsville. Not yes. not well, but uh, I can right. say anything. He prospered there, and in 1828 I was asked by Martin Van Buren to run for lieutenant governor. The Throop Van Buren ticket won the election, but shortly thereafter Van Buren resigned to George joined President Jackson's cabinet, dumping the governorship back, back on Enos Throop. Well, so, I tell you, I hate to be an expert on something I know nothing about, but my little foray into Wikipedia, that that was the plan for Van Buren and Throop, wasn't it? That Van Buren get elected, uh, and then he'd be named, and, and if Jackson also got elected, whom they supported, uh, he would name him Secretary of State, and then Throop would move up. The only tell you that the Jenkins book that I, was my reference said that Throop was actually not expecting it. All of a sudden, we have uh, Governor Throop. According to my source, like I said, he wasn't expecting it, but he used the opportunity and promoted legislation reversing some of the most difficult and uh, unpleasant legal inequities uh, that he had experienced uh, when his mother was widowed as a youth. He proposed the state uh, assume responsibility for aid to the poor and insane. He successfully fought to eliminate debtors' prison. He advocated the very progressive idea that public education was a right, and to guarantee it, the state should provide annual financial aid to the common schools, which I guess at that point was rather revolutionary. Mm. Recalling the burden of the debts left behind by his father, he stated, no person can question the injustice of transmitting to those who come after someone the burden of the deceased's heavy debt. Mm. Having successfully passed his agenda items by the end of his first term, uh, Thurp remained eligible for a second term, but declined. He was very happy with his 
success at eliminating debtors' prison and establishing a permanent system of financial aid to public schools. Yeah. Actually, it sounds like quite a couple of accomplishments there. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. Maybe we've got room for a couple of odd bits. I'll just mm-hmm. and and. He served in several other capacities after that. Uh, Van Buren appointed him charged affairs to the two kingdoms of the Sicilies. Now, I don't know what a charge the affairs is, and I didn't know there were two Sicilies. <laughs> and uh, I, I even uh, looked on a map, and I only saw mm. one. But I'm, I've heard that phrase, though, the two yeah. Sicilies. I don't know. He was mean, then, but... believe it or not, asked to run again for governor but decided not to. And, I mean, by now he's getting pretty well on in years, you know. Uh, But what did he do? He bought 800 acres of land near Kalamazoo, Michigan, and spent nine years over there developing those holdings. Then Then he came home and died in 1874. And was home still in Johnstown, or that he had been moved on from there? No, he'd gone and he gone. He uh, had established a large uh, uh, home for himself and at his Cayuga County properties uh, near Auburn, and uh, he went back there and died. So he did not come back to Johnstown any more than Kirk Douglas often came back to Amsterdam. <laughs> That's true. He was. He had other things to do. Yeah, we're talking. We're talking with Peter Betts. Uh, who writes a column about local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. We still have quite a bit of time left, uh, Peter, and you've got some other stories you'd like to tell? Yes, I've got some lovely little things from my Odd Bits column, if you want to go in there. Uh, This is from the July 16, 1891 uh, Daily Republican up here, and uh, I'm going to quote the whole thing. The largest snake in the world, measuring 20 feet in length and belonging to the New Orleans Museum, has escaped. The Gloversville leader recalls that this very same snake, when it was shown here at an earlier exhibition, tried to eat the leader reporter. (laughs) It it may be that this diabolical snake is now slithering back here from New Orleans to swallow up the entire editorial office. This big snake, after getting a fresh taste of the leader crowd, may yet decide that if they're the best editorial fodder Fulton County can supply, it doesn't want any more, and it may therefore leave the county behind in disgust. <laughs> that's that's a snake for you. You had suggested to me another topic that you have about uh, some con artists who sold fake wine to Gloversville Saloon keepers? Well, I didn't bring that one with me, Bob. All right. I'll have to do that another well, then, time. That, that whets your appetite for another visit with me. There you go. Well, then come up with some other uh, uh, items that you have there. That's not a problem. The June 1878 Gloversville Intelligencer reported what could have been a fatal accident in Broadalbin, but fortunately was not. On the 24th, an accident of considerable consequence happened to William Gray, the son of the Reverend Gray, who is aiding his father in the erecting of the new Baptist church. A four-pound brick fell from a scaffold hanging about 20 feet above the second floor down to where William was standing, striking him on the temple and making a sore wound. It was a narrow escape from hitting him directly on the top of his head, 
and causing instant death. Dr. Barker of this village dressed the wound, and William is now said to be in fine condition and ready to be hit again. <laughs> dear, dear me. It's true of all these, maybe saying, small cities of upstate New York. There was a variety of newspapers in Johnstown and Gloversville. Yes. Back yes, there in were. those days. Yeah. What yeah. what were some of the names? I mean, you, the Gloversville Intelligencer, and well, some of the had, names. You had are, the, the you had the Daily Republican. Uh, you had the Daily Leader, and and Johnstown. You had the Leader Republican. It's a little confusing after a while, and there were even one or two very short lived papers that I can't recall the, the names of right now that uh, literally lasted about three months. And, of course, at some point, the leader something and the herald something um, merged together. Right. Well, it was the morning herald and the daily leader. And so they, they did merge together. So you had a morning paper and you had an afternoon paper. Well, do you have another short tale for us from your column? Certainly, certainly. Employees of at least one traveling carnival during the early 1930s mm. used some very successful tricks to avoid paying Gloversville hotel keepers for their lodging while their carnival was playing in town. The August 6, 1932 Daily Saratogian reports, a representative of Gloversville's Hotel Association was in Saratoga Springs yesterday afternoon endeavoring to locate a number of men who he said stopped at his hotel last week and left without paying their bills. I was fortunate, he said, as I had some of the better class of carnival people in my hotel, and I only had about a third of them get away without paying. <laughs> yeah, I found out later some of them gave false names when they registered, and then they removed their baggage the day before they left by dropping it from the windows of their rooms to friends waiting outside to catch it. Goodness. Owners of the smaller hotels and rooming houses fared a lot worse than I did. My object of coming to Saratoga today is to warn you, Saratoga hotel men, to be on your guard. <laughs> we probably have time for one more if you've got one. Okay, here's a fun one to end with. Uh, the intelligencer reported that in nearby Mayfield, quote, the temperance wave has reached our shores and the demon rum must receive a terrific blow. The first temperance meeting this season was held in the Presbyterian Church last Friday, and another will be at the Methodist Church the following day. The pledge was circulated at these meetings, and 119 signatures were secured. It cuts off cider as well as whiskey. Some object to this, and will undoubtedly continue using cider. At one meeting, when the pledge failed to find singers, a young lady offered to kiss the first young man who signed up. A lanky fellow in the rear of the room rose up and exclaimed, I'm your Huckleberry. He quickly <laughs> signed the pledge and claimed his reward. Oh, good for him. How long have you been writing the column, Peter? Uh, uh, since uh, January of 2006. Right. And uh, I, have, I am very proud that it's a bi-weekly column, and I have not missed a bi-weekly yet. But I will tell you honestly, Bob, and, and your good people who are listening, I'm running out of stuff. 
Well, so if you have some stuff, get a hold of Peter. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I've done about every murder I can come up with. Yeah, you find they're very popular in your column, right? That's what people want, first of all, is murders. My goodness. Well, Peter Betts, I hope you write the column for the foreseeable future. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. Have a good day. Peter Betts writes a weekly or bi-weekly column, whoops, on local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or you can make out a check to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.